When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I was going to say that I'm not aware of any poet other than Seamus Heaney who has written such wonderful poems about his parents uh, from his first collection in the mid-60s all, all the way until his death. He published wonderful remembrances of his mother and father. But then I realized I can't think of any other major poet at all who has written much of anything about their parents. Uh, if anyone can think of any other than Seamus Heaney, do send me an email. It's always in the post description, but uh, I really can't. And in a way, Seamus Heaney's career begins with a poem about his father. Uh, in his earliest collection, Death of a Naturalist, from 1966, there is Heaney's fav uh, famous poem called Digging, um, where he chooses... Uh, the life of the pen rather than the spade as he watches his father digging and also remembers his grandfather doing the same digging. Um, I've always found that poem to be a little overplayed. Uh, it seems to be the go-to for Heaney and I'm not really sure uh, uh, if that is to be recommended for somebody like him. Um, it's the easy one to go to but uh, at least for me, if I want to go to a poem about his father or a good way to get into Heaney in his first collection, the one that I will go, would go to is the following. It's called Follower. My father worked with a horse plow. His shoulders globed like a full sail, strung between the shafts and the furrow. The horse strained at his clicking tongue, an expert. He would set the wing and fit the bright steel-pointed sock. The sod rolled over without breaking at the head rig with a single pluck of reins. The sweating team turned round and back into the land. His eye narrowed and angled the ground, mapping the furrow exactly. I stumbled in his hobnailed wake fell sometimes on the polished sod. Sometimes he rode me on his back, dipping and rising to his plod. I wanted to grow up and plow, to close one eye, stiffen my arm. All I ever did was follow in his broad shadow round the farm. I was a nuisance, tripping, falling, yapping always. But today it is my father who keeps stumbling behind me,
and will not go away. And that brings on, uh, that brings not just memories from Heaney's childhood and not just his uh, well-known rural subjects, but it also takes, I think uh, Heaney was 25 or 26 by the time this was published in Death of a Naturalist. It already sort of imagines him as being a lot older than he is and with his doddering father following behind him. Uh, this seems to me a good place to start reading Seamus Heaney's poetry. Now that I'm done with uh, uh, doing Robinson Jeffers here on this podcast, I'd like to start doing Heaney. And I thought that Follower would be a good place to begin. Love, I shall perfect for you the child who diligently potters in my brain, digging with heavy spade till sods were piled or puddling through muck in a deep drain. Yearly I would sow my yard-long garden. I'd strip a layer of sods to build the wall that was to exclude sow and pecking hen. Yearly, admitting these, the sods would fall. Or... In the sucking clabber I would splash delightedly and dam the flowing drain, but always my bastions of clay and mush would burst before the rising autumn rain. Love, you shall perfect for me this child whose small imperfect limits would keep breaking. Within new limits now, arrange the world within our walls, within our golden ring. Here is a third poem from Seamus Heaney's first collection, and it gives a good idea not just of where he was early in his career, uh, writing about the farm and writing about the earth, but it also kind of puts the lie to the idea of Heaney as some sort of, uh, well, I have Whitman on the mind lately, uh, something like a Whitman figure who is always just writing about pleasant and happy things. Um, I don't really know how that reputation would have attached itself to Heaney, except maybe that's the reputation that a poet who becomes as famous as he does or, or, or well-known as him, you have to assume that they're some sort of, some version of uh, easy listening. Um, but that is definitely not the case with Heaney. And you can see here, as in many of the poems in his first collection, that uh, there is uh, a great buried darkness and uh, later uh, buried violence that is at the bottom of a great deal of his poetry. And this is a poem called Personal Helicon. As a child, they could not keep me from wells and old pumps with buckets and windlasses. I loved the dark drop, the trapped sky, 
the smells of waterweed, fungus, and dank moss. One in a brickyard with a rotted board top. I savored the rich crash when a bucket plummeted down at the end of a rope, so deep you saw no reflection in it. A shallow one under a dry stone ditch, fructified like any aquarium. When you dragged out long roots from the soft mulch, a white face hovered over the bottom. Others had echoes, gave back your own call with a clean new music in it. And one was scarcome, for there, out of the ferns and tall foxgloves, a rat slapped across my reflection. Now, to pry into roots, to finger slime, to stare, big-eyed Narcissus, into some spring, is beneath all adult dignity. I rhyme to see myself, to set the darkness echoing. Now, for me at least, I think that might be the last poem in his first collection. That does the same job of digging, but much better, he says at the end of digging. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, as opposed to the spade, and I will dig with it. And for me, I rhyme to see myself to set the darkness echoing. Uh, does that a little better. But this is uh, a good start here to reading some Seamus Heaney. I've been away from the microphone for the past week or so. Uh, probably from what you can guess listening to my voice. And I'll see if I can read something here uh, without uh, sounding like I have a bad cold or am recovering from it. Um, one thing that I'd like to do now that I'm getting into the poetry of Seamus Heaney is to not just record my favorite poems from each of his books, but afterwards, and I will append this to the end of uh, the small collection I did on Heaney's poems in Death of a Naturalist, uh, but after each of those readings, I would like to add on uh, some remarks from Heaney himself about the poems in the book that uh, I will have just read from. Uh, one of the great gifts that we have uh, when we think about a poet like Heaney, is that he was very, he could talk about himself and about his influences and about other poets. Uh, he enjoyed uh, the time that he spent with them and about uh, so many things. He could speak about them so well and so personably. Uh, his own sort of mythology uh, can be entered into by anyone who, who is interested in doing so. And the main book that I will be using is uh, a really remarkable book called Stepping Stones, Interviews with Seamus Heaney by Dennis O'Driscoll. 
and these were compiled, I believe, uh, in the decade before Heaney died. And so it does take in his entire career. And it was, since it was done over the period of years, it is uh, amazingly exhaustive. Uh, it says somewhere, I believe in this book by uh, Dennis O'Driscoll, that while Heaney was considered the most interviewed and perhaps uh, over-interviewed, uh, poet of his uh, generation, or at least of the past 50 or 60 years, uh, when I begin to read uh, his responses to questions, you might understand quite why he was interviewed so much. Um, it's an odd thing because the time I've been spending with Walt Whitman and with William Shakespeare we don't have anything like this for them. Uh, we have uh, the letters of Whitman and his notebooks, but there is uh, no one that he talked this personably to. Uh, an exception might be Horace Traubel, but I'm not sure that he gets into the poetry quite as deeply as Heaney does. And of course there is uh, a blank when it comes to Shakespeare. And if we're thinking of Heaney's own generation, the poet that I would like to hear most from is actually uh, Ted Hughes. And while I have uh, two volumes of Hughes's letters, again, I'm not sure, given the kind of person that Hughes was and the kind of personal life that he had and the kind of trajectory of his career that he had that was that uh, was sort of intentionally not as public as Heaney's was, even though I think Hughes is by far the better and the stronger poet, sometimes uh, the wealth of information that you want does not match the, uh, the talent, you might say. Sometimes, uh, say with somebody like uh, Picasso, whose uh, paintings I like, but uh, he's not the greatest thing in the world. But if you want to know about painting in the 20th century, you go to the life of Picasso and you can probably learn uh, more than you would ever want to simply by studying his life. Now, to say that uh, I think Ted Hughes is a better poet than Seamus Heaney is sort of like comparing mountain ranges. Um, I don't mean to put Heaney down at all, uh, but it, it is worth, in, in the sense of comparing him with Picasso, it's worth noticing that if you want to know about poetry in the last 50 or 60 years, uh, it helps that we have such a wealth of information, not just about Heaney, but from Heaney himself. And with that, I will just start reading uh, bits and pieces from what he has to say in Dennis O'Driscoll's book about uh, his first collection, Death of a Naturalist, which came out when Heaney was still a young man. Let me look at the timeline here real quick. Um, Death of the Naturalist was published in 1966 by Faber and Faber, 
and Heaney was born in 1939, so he was not yet 30 years old when the book was published. Um, so just to give an indication of what Dennis O'Driscoll does, uh, he has about, let's see, uh, almost 30 pages of question and answers just on Death of a Naturalist, and I will be reading just a sliver of that. Uh, the first question is, uh, there must have been a lot of sheer delight simply from having published a book of poetry. And Shaney, uh, Seamus Heaney says this, I was indeed excited mightily, but that afternoon on my own in the new house, I was also very conscious of the mystery of what had happened, the ordinariness and, well, the election. I suppose that a I suppose I imagined that a poet published by Faber would be somebody in a realm apart, relieved of the usual botherations, acquainted with, quote, the shit in the shuttered chateau, end quote, and the bohemians in the pub, not somebody with a job, as Heaney was, at a teacher training college, with lectures to prepare and essays and exams to mark, taking his lunch at the staff table in the student dining room and listening to conversations about golf and life assurance. Uh, he mentions his wife, Marie. Marie and I were very much the typical young marrieds of that period, with our teak furniture and our second-hand Volkswagen, and by that stage, Marie pregnant, or expectant, as the term was then. We had our own freedoms and revels, of course, but there was something beyond expectation in having a book out from Faber and Faber. That afternoon stands out, me in the house waiting for Marie to come home from school, waiting to give her her copy. Death of a Naturalist was dedicated to her. I can remember feeling elated and maybe okay, a bit bewildered, but not to the point of confusion. There was obviously great fortification in what had happened. Something had come to a head, and it was take a deep breath and start again time. And you can see right from the beginning, uh, my uh, old preoccupation uh, with, uh, with what fame and creativity uh, is supposed to yield, what we are told it is supposed to yield. Heaney thought the same thing when he was... 24, 25, 26 years old. If you're published by Faber and Faber, you should uh, not have to deal with the drudgery of the everyday, but he learns almost immediately that that does not leave you. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll asks him uh, about his Catholic background, and if he was writing from a specifically Catholic perspective, and Heaney says this, I wasn't consciously writing from a Catholic perspective, but undoubtedly the work was affected by the bonding. If I were to say that I wrote consciously as a Catholic, it would imply that I saw myself as a representative with some sort of agenda, yet there was no such thought and no such agenda. 
On the other hand, after I had written the poem Digging, I remember feeling that there must be hundreds of people of my generation who had had a similar experience of exchanging spade work for pen work, and that they'd be bound to know what the poem was about. I suppose a majority of those scholarship people would have been Catholics, but by no means exclusively. And here, uh, Dennis O'Driscoll just asks Heaney to describe where he wrote some of these early poems that are in uh, Heaney's first collection. Uh, Seamus Heaney says, I shared a flat from 1961 until 1963 with two postgraduates in biochemistry, and I wrote my poem Midterm Break one evening there, after a day's teaching in St. Thomas's school, sitting in an armchair waiting for one of those guys to produce the evening meal, we had a rota, week by week. One of us did the shopping, one did the cooking, and one did the dishes. It was my week for the dishes, so I had this free hour from five to six, and I remembered Christopher's accident because it was February round about the time of his anniversary. And here, for those who haven't read the poem, uh, Midterm Break is about the death of Seamus Heaney's brother, I believe at the age of four, when uh, Heaney was uh, away at school. And this is just one instance uh, uh, of popping the balloon about creativity. that uh, You have this this poem that is now known around the world about the death of this child. And uh, we're supposed to imagine uh, uh, the poet off in the ether somewhere, perhaps, um, or uh, maybe ensconced in some uh, bohemian uh, garret or basement. Uh, and instead, what you have is uh, someone sharing a flat with two postgraduates waiting for uh, somebody to make dinner. And that is when this uh, uh, this by now immortal poem comes out. He also says, I stayed in Belfast during term time and would go home to Belachy at Christmas and sometimes at weekends and always for the summer holidays. The poem Digging I wrote at home in the wood in August 1964, upstairs in the bedroom. The poem Death of a Naturalist I wrote in one of the flats on a Sunday afternoon, after lying out in the sun with Marie and her flatmates at the back of a place they had in Tate's Avenue. The dead heat in their little back garden and the reek of litter bins in the alley behind the houses reminded me of the stink of flax in the dam years before. The poem Trout, I remember, writing on a CNA carrier bag in Marie's flat, when they were all gabbling away together and the record player was going full blast. I couldn't manage that kind of concentration nowadays. And I did a section of the famine poem called At a Potato Digging, sitting in the driver's seat of my VW Beetle in Botanic Avenue. I may have been waiting for somebody, or have parked on impulse to note the thing down. 
And this is, I, I read this just to share the details of the things that uh, uh, any writer that I know uh, seems to remember. They remember where they wrote things, the uh, where and when and, and the circumstances of it. I know that Heaney is a was a great fan of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses, and you hear him mentioning here uh, the dates, the addresses, the car he's sitting in, uh, the record player, and it almost sounds like the kind of detail that Joyce would have put in to make the lives real uh, in Ulysses. This is a, a wonderful passage here. So you have somebody like W.B. Yeats, uh, who's known all around the world, um, and by, uh, by common estimation, the great Irish poet after Yeats is uh, Patrick Kavanaugh. Uh, but uh, Patrick Kavanaugh, at least uh, to my knowledge of it, uh, doesn't seem to have been known that much outside of Ireland. And uh, O'Driscoll asks Heaney if he ever met Patrick Kavanaugh himself. And Heaney says, not until 1967, the year after Death of a Naturalist was released. And Heaney says, that summer I taught for a week or two at a summer course in Trinity College and was introduced to him by Richard Ryan in the Bailey on Duke Street, standing at the bar. I didn't particularly want to meet him. I had some hunch he'd not want anything to do with a young one like me, who'd had the luck, the neck, to be published by Faber. His own collected poems had come out just then, the book that begins with his saying that he'd never been much regarded by the English critics, and here was I, garlanded with sound bites from Christopher Ricks and C.B. Cox and so on. Could he not take his ease at his inn without this? But in fact, the whole thing went off very stylishly. At first I avoided the contact as unobtrusively as possible, kept my face to the counter when he stopped to speak to Richard, and waited for him to move on. He was coming back past our part of the counter on his way from the gents. But the pause continued, and what had begun as a reticence started to look like an ignorance. So I turned round and said, Mr. Cavanaugh, can I buy you a drink? No, he replies, with the O and the no well lengthened out. So then Richard says something like, Patty, this man's come down here from Belfast and he's just published a book of poems. His name's Seamus Heaney. And Kavanaugh says to me, Are you Heaney? Rhyming, rhyming me with rainy, as people did in the country at home. Well, I'll have a scotch, he said. So I took that as a pass. And we'll see throughout this book uh, how Heaney deals with his early fame uh, his early skyrocketing success, um, where, where he is both self-conscious of having, uh, 
been gifted this chance at uh, great attention and not to say that he doesn't think he deserves it, but he is mightily aware that other poets uh, might also think that they would have deserved it too, and that it might as well, at least at first, have landed on them instead of him, and he is aware of that. Oh, yes, in, in this very next passage, he describes uh, uh, the rivalry that he, that may have been apparent in the group of poets that he was running with at the time that were called the group. Uh, O'Driscoll spends a bit of time talking about the group because it does uh, bring in uh, uh, a good deal of uh, other well-known Irish poets, such as Michael Longley and uh, Derek Mahan and, and others uh, who were involved with Haney. Uh, They're all involved together during that time, and all of a sudden some uh, Heaney takes off like a rocket. And he's asked, would you describe the rivalry uh, as having been at all times healthy? Uh, and this is what uh, Heaney says. He's, this is after describing what they would do as a, as a group of unknowns at the time, uh, meeting at somebody's house on a Monday evening, and uh, reading each other's poetry as well as sharing the poetry that uh, they most admired. And this is what Heaney has to say about the healthiness of the rivalry. He says, I don't think the rivalry, if that's the right word, was ever unhealthy in the matter of writing, in the sheer aspiration to best yourself. The desire to have something terrific to pull out of your pocket when you met that kind of trumping and self-trumping was enjoyed by all. No begrudging, in other words, of achievement per se. The awkwardness or resentment set in when one was promoted over the other by publication or praise, or later by the award of a prize. More a matter of ratings than rivalry. But that kind of thing just cannot be helped. And this is Heaney, of course, responding to this question, uh, what, would, what would we say, uh, between 40 and 50 years after the events. He says, what's required all around in those situations is good behavior, government of the tongue, so to speak, at least when face to face. And I believe we were all well enough behaved. We managed to navigate the bad stretches without capsizing. I always knew my reception and the favor I enjoyed brought out rivalry, not to say resentment in others. Michael Longley has put on record a flare-up in drink one night at David Hammond's place, where what was no doubt private dogma was shouted out as public challenge. The tongue was ungoverned, and I was told that Derek Mahan was the better poet. It didn't surprise me to know this was the verdict, but to have it expressed so aggressively was unexpected. For a long time I kept making inner allowances, telling myself to see it from their point of view, but at a certain stage I decided, to hell with it. I'm not going round trying to get one up on anybody. It's a live and let live from now on. Michael told Jody Allen Randolph that, quote, 
we competed with each other more ferociously than perhaps we now remember, end quote. But I don't think I considered myself in competition with anybody. Admittedly, I may have been the cause of it in others, which only means, come to think of it, I was raising the standard without even trying. And uh, an answer like that is sort of where uh, the the wise and the kind and the open-hearted uh, nature that Heaney seems to have sort of, uh, uh, I don't know how you would say, folds in on itself uh, uh, claustrophobically almost. It's not quite sure what to say and how to say it and how to remain uh, polite. Um, I wonder what Heaney would have said. Uh, I believe we were all well enough behaved. It all requires good behavior if he had been on the other side. But then, as he says, uh, at some point, um, it might be true that he wasn't trying to be as successful as he became. And at some point, you just have to ignore uh, the noise. And we can only imagine uh, uh, what all of this, uh, how all of this would have taken place nowadays on Twitter. So they go on to speak about um, uh, when, a, when a handful of Heaney's poems was taken by, uh, by a magazine in the UK, and that is what leads to Faber and Faber asking for uh, a manuscript from him of, of a full collection. And uh, he mentions that... Uh, the, the confidence and the surge that he got from that interest uh, brought on a good deal of uh, the later, the final poems that he ended up writing for Death of a Naturalist. And this is what he's talking about here. Uh, O'Driscoll says, so the poems you've just mentioned, including Blackberry Picking and others, belong to early 1965 a period when, according to your own account, you wrote a hell of a lot. Was this writing an act of will to ensure that you'd have enough poems for the first collection? Or were you writing with an extra surge of confidence because Faber and Faber was beckoning? And Heaney says, I was buoyed up and charged up at the same time and had a powerful will to deliver. Charles Monteith's letter from Faber picked out Death of a Naturalist in Digging as the poems that took his fancy, so that encouraged me to concentrate on subjects and settings around Mossbawn, Mossbawn being the family farm where Heaney grew up. And once I opened those channels, I got the surge, definitely. And O'Driscoll asks, was it obvious from the beginning that Digging would have to be the first poem in the book. And Heaney says, it was the first poem in the manuscript I sent uh, in a previous version of the book to uh, a publisher in Ireland called Dolman. And from the moment I wrote it in August 1964, I knew that it was a strength giver. Where else could it be placed? I decided its position 
it decided its position for itself. And O'Driscoll asks about the poem uh, Digging. Now that it's so famous, I should also ask if you remember how the gun-slash-pen image occurred to you, and ask you, too, if there was any political significance in the fact that images of gun barrel, bullet, armory, salvo, pottery bombs, and so on, all appear in various poems that precede the Troubles. And here he's talking about uh, uh, lines in the poem, poem Digging, about uh, uh, about it resting in his hand, snug as a gun, and that always being in uh, uh, between my finger and my thumb, snug as a gun. Uh, does that have anything to do with uh, with the violence in Northern Ireland? And uh, Heaney says, when Dennis Donahue reviewed the book, he suggested that I'd seen too many war films and cowboy films when I was a youngster. In fact, I saw very few films when I was a youngster, but I have to admit to a partiality later on for the Dam Busters and Reach for the Sky and many of those old Second World War escape films. Was there one called The Wooden Horse? So maybe Dennis's guess is as good as mine. But the high-voltage diction of Ted Hughes' work had something to do with it, too. In the case of the pen between my finger and my thumb, snug as a gun, and all the rest of it, I was responding to an entirely phonetic prompt, a kind of sonic chain dictated by the inner ear. It's the connection between the uh sounds in thumb and snug and gun that are the heart of the poetic matter rather than any sociological or literary formation. On the other hand, there are those mud grenades in Death of a Naturalist that seem to have a sexual pin in them just waiting to be pulled. So who's to say for definite about these things? And when he's asked, this is a nice remark, and when he's asked how much editing he did at the proof stage in the manuscript of the book, uh, Heaney says, as far as I remember, there was only one I rewrote the last three or four stanzas of a poem called An Advancement of Learning. I had a kind of superstitious loyalty to that poem, because it was the first one accepted by the Irish Times. As a poem, it's fairly rickety, something I was aware of even then. But there are all kind of irrational factors at work when you're dealing with poems. Superstitious loyalties that take precedence over your artistic better judgment. And that is something uh, well worth uh, bearing in mind, that, uh, that, the, that the writing of poems and sometimes the, the final choices that you make are not all aesthetic. Uh, very often uh, they are personal, or they are, as my wife and I like to say, about uh, poems of mine, or writing of hers, or uh, bits of stories of mine that have references that only she or very few other people will see. They are signposts. And in the case here, Heaney is saying that uh, 
he wanted this poem to be in his first collection because of what it meant to him being published uh, in Ireland by the Irish Times, if no other reason than that. It was uh, a symbol of some kind, and that was enough reason to keep it. And here's another, another good few remarks of a different kind. First, he's talking about uh, the American poet Theodore Ruthka, and uh, uh, O'Driscoll says, uh, asks if he was important to Heaney at the time. And Heaney says, not early on, but when The Far Field came out in 1964, and then The Collected Poems in 1968, he became one of the invoked spirits. And this is a phrase that uh, recurs many times throughout this book of interviews and that I have taken on myself when referring to the poets and the writers that I love. I'm sure I've used it in a few episodes here. Referring to these people as the invoked spirits. Heaney says, I remember seeing Ruthka's poem Meditation at Oyster River in the Critical Quarterly and coming alive to the generosity and supply behind it. I loved his greenhouse poems, too, but something else that interested me about Ruthka was the split in his poetic persona. He wrote those big Whitman-esque roller coaster poems, and then, in a different vein, some very tightly rhymed metrical things, villanelles and so on. I suppose the interest sprang from my own experience in doing poems which were correspondingly open and closed a trudging sort of poem like digging, say, and then trimmer ones like follower. And listeners will remember that uh, I prefer the poem follower to digging, probably for that, uh, for that same reason. It does feel uh, more controlled, not to say just that, that it is also less famous than its counterpart. Um, I mention, I read this part too, about Theodore Ruthka because, uh, and I mention all of these other names uh, throughout these recordings here, um, of other writers, of other critics, of other publishers, uh, of other friends that he knew, of his wife, um, without any reference or explanation because uh, the footnote to who these people were or who these poems are really uh, isn't the point. Um, if someone wants to find uh, Theodore Ruthka's poem uh, or his collected poems to find what Heaney is talking about, then this can be a prompt to do that. But it is also uh, re reading it without the footnotes, without explaining what all of this is. Uh, it not only keeps these episodes from being two hours long, but it also just suggests uh, the huge world that... Uh, that a poet can live in, uh, can consciously live in. And I think it also gives allowance to other poets out there who may feel self-conscious about their own version of this world that they live in, to suddenly hear uh, Seamus Heaney talking about what he was reading in his mid-twenties and uh, how he was getting on in life uh, with this poet or that poet. Um, 
I mention these names almost as if, I guess, uh, as if these are, as Heaney says, his invoked spirits, as if these are the particular syllables in the spells that uh, supported Heaney's life, and that there's nothing wrong at all with everyone else having different syllables in the spells that they uh, that they have guiding their own lives as poets. And here is a nice remark from Heaney about um, uh, O'Driscoll asks, when you reopen Death of a Naturalist now, are you tempted to rewrite or revise or excise poems? Or is it too late to think in those terms? And his, and his answer is interesting. He says, as a matter of fact, I have done a bit of excising already. After Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux published field work in America, they put out four earlier books. They put out the four earlier books in a single volume. And, you've, and if you look in the Death of a Naturalist part of that collection, a book called Poems 1965-1975, you'll see that I dropped seven of the poems. The naturalist has been out, had been out for 14 years at that stage, and I felt free to exercise my judgment. But, he goes on to say, I would never interfere with the contents of the volume per se, the volume I mean reprinted under its own title. That stands, and I have no problem about it. It is what it is, and what it was. Uh... And this is strange because that that is the version of Death of a Naturalist that I read in the in the book called Poems, nineteen sixty five to nineteen seventy five, and it was just striking to me that he would see a difference between that book reprinted with three other collections and that book reprinted on its own, that they could uh, have two different uh, uh, tables of contents. I think that's a another nice and very particular and very uh, singular thing, again, showing that uh, there are no thou shalts with all of this stuff. And the very last uh, remark that I'll read here on Death of a Naturalist uh, is also something that I've mentioned in the past, um, which also brings up all the biases of when people find the poems, poets they love, um, it goes back to the phrase Heaney used earlier about superstitious loyalties, the chance factor in um, not only the poets, the poems that the poet writes, but the poems that the readers read and the ones they go back to. O'Driscoll has the very good uh, question here. Does it ever surprise or indeed annoy you that there are readers who still regard Death of a Naturalist as their favorite collection. And Heaney very wisely says this, uh, I can understand that easily. Readers who stay with you from the start are going to have a particular affection for the early stuff. There is something self-charging about every good first reading experience. If you asked me, I'd probably have to say that Lupercal is my own favorite Ted Hughes collection. It's not that I don't admire Ted's work all through. It's just that the original transmissions 
stay alive in a special way. And as I think I said here before, I can't remember. And if I did, I will just lop this off or maybe just leave it as it is imperfect. That uh, for me, the original transmission for a very long time was the, uh, was the sound of Death of a Naturalist. Uh, all of the alliteration and the uh, sloppy sounds of nature that came with it. Um, and after that, the way he was able to uh, transport those sounds to the bog poems and the outright violence of his 1975 collection, North, uh, for a long time, that was the sound of Seamus Heaney for me, and it was a sound that I loved. Uh, now, the poems in North are still ones that I love. Uh, the poems in Death of a Naturalist, not so much. And I knew that I was really breaking through to something new with Seamus Heaney when, uh, a few years ago, I came back to his... Uh, I believe 1990 collection, let me make sure. I came back to his uh, 1991 collection called uh, Seeing Things, where uh, he has a sequence of uh, 48 poems, I think called Squarings. And uh, for a long time, I thought this is where, uh, you know, this is where Heaney jumped the shark. This is where he became too inward and too uh, self-reflective, too uh, too uh, too irretrievably autobiographical, um, and sort of uh, left the planet and left the readers behind. But then, when I came back to it a few years a few years ago, I found that these poems, which don't even have titles, just numbers, are probably the best poems that he ever wrote. These very quiet, uh, very, uh, I don't know what to say, um, very quiet and very personal poems that I will be getting to very soon. Um, but for now, that is a few poems from Death of a Naturalist and Seamus Heaney talking about the time in his life when he was writing those poems and when the book came out. Um, I hope that my voice hasn't uh, ruined the recording of any of this. Um, and until next time. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us the number one at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.